The following discussion was held at Middle East Books and More in the Adams Morgan neighborhood of Washington, D.C. on December 10, 2021. Historian and author Walter Hickson addressed the question, Can America's special relationship with Israel endure? Hickson is the author of Imperialism and War, The History Americans Need to Own, and Architects of Repression, How Israel and Its Lobby Put Racism, Violence, and Injustice at the Center of U.S. Middle East Policy. Thank you to Middle East Books and More, and to the magazine, Washington Report, and to the Institute for Research Middle East Policy, as well as the magazine and the bookstore. So yeah, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the special relationship between the United States and Israel and put that in historical context and um, address this question of its endurance um, in the end. So I think I'd like to start off, Grant mentioned a book I did in 2013 uh, called American Settler Colonialism. I think a good place to start is with settler colonialism. Um, so what is that? That's when a modernist, typically white, uh, people believe they are more advanced uh, than indigenous people whose lands uh, inhabit and uh, forcefully uh, take over. The essence of settler colonialism is elimination of the native. Uh, this involves ethnic cleansing, uh, massacres, removal policies, and that's what uh, happened throughout American history, as well as throughout the history of Israel. And so there are both settler colonial states. And this goes a long way toward explaining the special relationship between the United States and Israel. So I'll talk a little bit about Israel, what it is, what it does, its identity, its policies, uh, quick overview of that history, and then look at the U.S. role in the uh, Palestine issue and the special relationship, and then uh, sum up and take some questions from you folks and people looking in online. So that's the plan. So, um, yeah, David Ben-Gurion, the patriarch of Israel, um, in a letter to his son in 1937, more than a decade before the creation of Israel, uh, said this, we must expel Arabs and take their places. So this eliminationism, this removal, which is the essence of settler colonialism, was inherent in the Zionist settler project. And it's been going on ever since. Uh, removal policies, uh, ethnic cleansing, uh, episodic massacres, and, and it's a violent phenomenon. This is not, people don't give up their homelands freely and peaceably, whether they're indigenous Americans or Palestinians. So... Um, the elimination is the essence. The Nakba was uh, one, the first critical turning point in 1948 after the partition, the UN-brokered partition of Palestine. Uh, in the Nakba, 750,000 Palestinians were infamously driven out uh, of their homes and their lands, and uh, Israeli um, Zionist settlers uh, took, took over. So while there are similarities between the United States and Israeli settler colonialism, there are also important differences. Um, there's two main differences I like to focus on. In um, come on in, get a good good seat. Good feel free seat. There's two free. main differences I'd like to to focus on. Uh, one is um, the uh, horrific and very real history of anti-Semitism going over uh, lasting for centuries, which I chronicle in the appendix to um, Architects of Repression, along with demythologizing the biblical narrative of ancient Israel. I put that, those in an appendix. But the um, Nazi genocide, the anti-Semitism and culminating in the Nazi genocide, gave a particular intensity to Israeli settler colonialism that no other settler colonialism quite had the same sort of phenomenon. The second major aspect of this, which becomes really critical to understanding the role of the Israel lobby, is the belatedness of Israeli settler colonialism. So what I mean by that is the United States, Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, their settler colonies were established in the 19th century. In the 19th century, scientific racism held that some races were superior to others Spreading civilization, subduing savagery was, was more acceptable. By the mid-20th century, particularly in the wake of the Nazi genocide, the creation of the UN, 
the articulation of the rights of indigenous people, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, this sort of behavior is not acceptable. And yet, it's at the essence of Israeli policies. Uh, there are traditional settler colonial policies as if, though, much like those uh, in the 19th century. So this belatedness makes Israel a particularly reactionary settler state and makes it also very important to have what I'll come back and talk to uh, about more later, a lobby to um, spread propaganda and disinformation in order to try to uh, enable the settler colonization. Um, so Israel is what I call a uh, congenitally aggressive settler state. It's very aggressive from the outset. Uh, when you look at the history in depth, as I've done, you'll see that there's a long history of borderland aggression, targeting Jordan, uh, Syria, neighboring states, and particularly later by the 80s, uh, Lebanon, and uh, certainly uh, in, in uh, very violent and indiscriminate warfare policies there and in the Gaza Strip in more recent years. So it's a congenitally aggressive settler state. Uh, this is not really, you know, my opinion. Uh, this is pretty factual. Uh, it's evidence-driven. Uh, this is what the history of the conflict uh, or of, of Israel's identity uh, shows us. It's also a militant warfare state, and, and the United States is also uh, a militant warfare state to a considerable extent, more of the symmetry between these two settler societies that have this special relationship. So if you look at... Um, these, this borderland aggression, the 1956 Suez War, and then the 1967 war. This is a pivot in 1967. Um, <clears throat> a lot of people wrongly think that Israel was in a defensive mode in the 1967 war. In fact, that's a war Israel wanted and uh, made happen, and that efforts by the United States, which... which uh, um, were not enduring to prevent the war from, from starting. That is, the United States uh, didn't ultimately, could have insisted that the war not happen um, or tried harder, but Johnson wasn't thrilled about it. Israel wanted the war and made the war happen and then took the occupied territories. This is the pivot to apartheid Israel. So another aspect of this that is not opinion, it is factual, is that Israel is an apartheid state. It um, has a 20% uh, Palestinian um, Arab population. They do have voting rights, but they're very clearly second-class citizens and have been subjected to uh, racist uh, discourse uh, throughout. It, it, it's not any kind of existence that's going to make you feel included in the supposed sole democracy of the Middle East. Beyond that 20% minority inside Israel's recognized borders, uh, are the residents of the West Bank who have been gradually um, um, removed from their homes and, and replaced, we must expel Arabs and take their places. 700,000 uh, settlers have w moved into um, the occupied territories, particularly the West Bank. Uh, this is illegal under international law. It's uh, a war crime, essentially. And this is a reflection of the congenital aggression of, of um, the Israeli settler state. <clears throat> um, as we all know, there have been various efforts to forge a Middle East peace. When you look carefully at the history of, of uh, this situation, you'll find that the peace process is uh, a chimera. It is, um, in essence, um, a, a farce. There, uh, because... What settler states do is drive out indigenous people and take their place. There was no real desire on the part of the Israelis uh, from Ben-Gurion on through Rabin, somewhat of an exception, but don't forget that Rabin was an architect of occupation policies in the West Bank and, and very brutal policies as defense minister. So by and large, the so-called peace process is a farce. Uh, and that's why peace never came off and the two-state solution never happened and is essentially dead. Um, you know, Palestinians weren't perfect throughout this whole process, but blaming Palestinians for the situation in, in the Middle East is like blaming uh, indigenous North Americans for 
what happened in the history of the United States, which I'll get into in other places and times in terms of American history of settler colonialism. One other aspect of this I might mention is that uh, Israel, of course, uh, today there's a lot of discussion about Iran, nuclear weapons. Israel is the country that introduced nuclear weapons to the Middle East. It did so in defiance of sincere efforts by its patron, the United States, to prevent that from happening. Israel uh, lied to the United States repeatedly about its intentions and then presented a fait accompli of doing, in fact, exactly what it said it wouldn't do, introducing nuclear weapons to the Middle East. So um, the significant uh, role of the United States in all this is, where we'll, is what I'll turn to now. None of this really can happen without American enabling of Israel throughout this process. Um, the United States um, was sympathetic at the birth of Israel and um, perhaps somewhat uh, guilt-ridden over, like um, most other countries, not doing much beyond winning the war to stop the Nazi genocide. Um, the United States had the largest Jewish population in the world at the end of World War II, larger than, than Israel's influx, which had, uh, Jewish settlers had poured into Israel in the 1930s and would soon outnumber the American uh, Jewish population. But it's important to remember that most Jews in the largest Jewish population in the world was in the United States at the time of the creation of Israel. The United States has also been the heartland of Christian Zionism. And let's um, not underestimate the importance of Christian Zionist sympathies in the biblical, mythological, biblical narrative of um, of Israel and um, as the, the Jewish homeland. So all this was important. However, the Department of State, the, um, of course, cabinet-level uh, bureaucracy in charge of U.S. foreign policy and formulating foreign policy, in theory anyway, before the explosion of national security entities after World War II, the Department of State sought a balanced uh, Middle East policy rather than the distinctly pro-Israeli policy that the United States actually pursued. So uh, American diplomats, including uh, some that are related to the uh, Washington Report and Middle East uh, executive editor, and others um, that are familiar to people in this room and maybe some on Zoom, uh, some of these diplomats tried very hard to have the United States have a balanced diplomacy in the Middle East, by which they meant not um, being not being this special ally that uh, enabled and acquiesced to uh, all of these policies that uh, I've been talking about, but rather would confront them. So as I mentioned, they tried on nuclear weapons, but, but failed. Um, what the State Department and the UN, to reiterate that Declaration of uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, introducing the concept of human rights, rights of indigenous people, Israel had to combat that as well. So the early Israel lobby is created to overcome this effort by State Department diplomats to promote a balanced foreign policy in the Middle East. In part, they want to keep oil flowing and not alienate the Arab world, but at the same time, they also saw that this would create perennial instability uh, if Israel just had its way with everything and uh, did not accommodate refugee return, the establishment of Jerusalem as an international city, not as it's been proclaimed today, a, the capital of the eternal uh, Jewish homeland. Um, and to tame this borderland aggression, there were all sorts of things the State Department diplomats attempted to do. And presidents, including very pro-Israeli presidents like Truman, who was very important in the early years in the establishment of Israel, even Johnson, very pro-Israeli, more pro-Israeli than any president except Trump, who's in a whole different category in any number of ways, as we all know, um, including that one. He gave Israel everything it wanted in, in every area. But these efforts to draw the line spurred the evolution of the lobby. 
So when we talk about the Israel lobby, it's a complicated subject. You can come back to it in Q&A um, to fill in some gaps if you wish, but I'll give you a, a basic overview of the lobby and its, and its role. So it, <clears throat> its role is to prevent the president and the State Department from having a balanced Middle East policy. Its role is to ensure there's a pro-Israeli policy and this special relationship that Kennedy eventually proclaimed would occur. How do you do that? You do that, in, in the beginning, they, they organized by, their main concern was getting American funding for the settlement of Jewish refugees in Israel. So while driving out 750,000 Palestinians, Israel invited any Jew anywhere in the world to come live in Israel and wanted the United States to help fund it, which it did. And this is when Israel essentially began to gain a vice grip on the United States Congress. And this is one of the most important aspects of this conflict. The Israel lobby owns the United States Congress. The United States Congress does what Israel wants. That's not even an exaggeration. It is absolutely under the control of AIPAC and the Israel lobby. So AIPAC comes along in the late 50s, uh, but there are myriad other organizations. This is what the, we don't have time to go into in great depth, but uh, a very important one is the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. There's a whole conjuries of um, Israel affinity groups, local federations, uh, various Jewish groups, Christian Zionist groups. It's, it's a vast, multifaceted uh, entity, an extremely powerful lobby. And it got powerful by ensuring that this special relationship and this uh, pro-Israeli policy remained in place, responded to any and all challenges through propaganda, disinformation, letter-writing campaigns, organized demonstrations, funding candidates favorable to Israel, targeting candidates hostile to Israel or, or opposing or even moderately critical uh, of Israel. Um, the Near East Report uh, publication created in the late 50s was very effective. Newsletter sent to every member of Congress. They began to fund junkets to Israel for congressional representatives, which go on to this day, targeting, targeting them when they first elected office, winning them over, ensuring, lining them up, letting them know that there will be a price to pay if they don't support the Israeli line. All of this funded primarily by wealthy Orthodox Jewish donors. Um, so a very well-funded lobby and very effective lobby. And so it has precluded, the lobby has helped preclude a balanced diplomacy in the Middle East, prevented this two-state solution, farcical peace process from being a real peace process. It has also resulted in Israel being the unquestioned military powerhouse of the Middle East. So the United States, as I'm sure many of you know, has given, it's really an absurd fact, I find it absurd, that a small country of 9 million people that is modern and has a high standard of living, well more than all the countries surrounding it in the Arab world, well more than our neighbors in Latin America, has nonetheless received since World War II uh, more funding from the United States, military assistance to the tune of $146 billion than any other country in the world. So Israel is privileged, and not only does it get more money, it gets it on uh, through an early dispersal mechanism that no other state enjoys. So this is indeed a very special relationship, and without the United States and the lobby that is housed here in Washington, uh, Grant Smith and I visited it the other day, it's, it's there, it's real, it's on H Street, you can go look at the building, but you won't see any signs that say, APAC, welcome to the Israel lobby, it's an innocuous office building, but it's growing and it's expanding. They're expanding their number of employees. And um, there's many things about this whole history that one can find upsetting. The contempt for human rights, the massacres, the mistreatment of people, um, the funding of it. But may maybe the one that upsets me the most is people who are otherwise uh, critical, who poo-poo the role of the Israel lobby. Um, and this is just wrongheaded. It's very real and very consequential and highly effective and plays a dramatically important role. Just look at the recent vote on the Iron Dome, for example, 
Uh, Israel, as I said before, owns the Congress, and the lobby makes sure that it owns the Congress. So if you're an American sitting in here, uh, the People's House and its Middle East policy is, is formulated in uh, Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and Washington in, in collaboration and bolstered by the uh, Israel lobby. Uh, so that's the, the essence uh, of the situation, uh, both the, the U.S. role and the Israeli identity. Um, think tanks like the Washington Institute for Near East Policy uh, depict themselves as uh, academic observers of the Middle East, just a wing of the Israel lobby, uh, utterly pro-Israel policies, people put in charge of negotiating the farcical peace process were Zionists uh, who were favorable to Israel, uh, which also ensured that no, no um, peace process really played out. The Israel lobby, as Grant Smith has shown in his work, very original work, is expanding into state governments as well, not just the national government. So it's very powerful. Uh, the academy, academics, journalists, and politicians have been craven. Um, that's, a, that's another word for gutless. And have refused to take on uh, this lobby and uh, cower at criticism of Israel. Um, I, it's easier for me. I'm retired now. But if I was a young beginning professor, it would be probably a death sentence to my career to do the kind of work or the kind of talk I'm doing now. And a lot of people, therefore, shy away from it. So uh, America hasn't uh, shown itself uh, very courageous in view of this situation. There's nothing ambiguous about it. It's a human rights nightmare. It's killing people. It's driving them from their homes. It's refusing to make peace. It's militarizing a region. These are facts. Okay? These are not opinions. These are facts. That's what they do. That's what this conflict, that's what the special relationship is. That's your tax dollars at work if you're an American. So there's going to be no two-state solution to this conflict. There's too many settlers have taken over lands, expelled Arabs, and taken their places. The only solution to this conflict is for Israel to actually become what its propaganda has said it is, but it is not, and that is the sole democracy of the Middle East. If Israel actually became a democracy, respected human rights, respected its Arab citizens, created a unified state um, in which people could live freely, uh, regardless of their religion, um, maybe we could make some progress. Israel's gone the other direction. It's become more and more reactionary. It's been led by a series of war criminals. Again, this is not my opinion. This is a fact. Uh, Begin, Sharon, Ben-Gurion, Netanyahu, an openly racist Israeli leader, celebrated before the U.S. Congress at, in, in blatant contempt of the sitting president, uh, who didn't, um, the Congress uh, invited him uh, in that famous uh, address. So um, that's the situation we face now. Um, the, I say Israel's gone in the other direction. The Jewish state law in 2018 has proclaimed Israel a Jewish state. It's basically saying, hey, you 20% of people who are supposed to be citizens, you don't matter because you're not Jews. Your Palestinians are, uh, some Palestinians are Christians, most are, are, are Muslims. Um, whatever they are, they're not uh, first-class citizens. And then there's the occupied territories. So Israel is an apartheid, militant apartheid state, not opinion fact. It's a militant apartheid state. So can this situation endure? Well, it's endured a long time. And the lobby is working very hard, adding more people, adding more office space. For these those folks who argue that the lobby is not all that influential, I wonder why they're building a larger building, adding more personnel. They're very influential, and they mean to continue their work, and they know what's at stake. What they've done more and more in recent times is um, attack free speech. Because when you don't have the facts on your side, what do you do? Well, you distort the facts. You engage in disinformation. You attack people who exercise their rights to free speech. You call them anti-Semites. 
You get them removed from their positions. You attack students at universities for trying to form Students for Justice in Palestine clubs. You attack students and university administrators talk about craven, sell out their own students because there's a call from a donor or a member of the board of trustees who gets a phone call. So it's very powerful. It's very ruthless. It has nothing to do with democracy, and it's attacking free speech. Israel and the lobby are not content to take away the rights of Palestinians. They want to take away the rights of Americans. They want to take away the rights of Americans to criticize and to engage in debate over U.S. foreign policy. So can it endure? Well, it's very powerful. It means to endure, but it's um, got the facts and the tide of history, I hope, going against it. Where are the vulnerabilities? What are the things we can hope for uh, about this transition uh, to a less of a <clears throat> human rights nightmare in the Middle East and an American foreign policy uh, owned by uh, the lobby of a foreign country? or a lobby, uh, it's, the Israel lobby is comprised of Americans. Let's get that straight, but they work closely with Israel. Um, so I think there are three areas that people can focus on if you want to attack this uh, horrific situation. One is the blatant, palpable racism. Israel is an apartheid state. It needs to be called an apartheid state. More or less, we need to say when we run into people who defend Israel and Israel's policies, oh, well, you're a racist. You support apartheid. You have contempt for the human rights of individual people. You believe in ethnic discrimination. They clearly do. Their policies clearly do that. Their own human rights agency, B'Tselem, has declared Israel an apartheid state. So this is an important front, particularly in the era we live in where Black Lives Matter has been uh, outspoken to confront Israel and Israel's supporters and the lobby with their racism. This should be a powerful tool, and yet we have, I always pick on Cory Booker, the senator from New Jersey is a good example. He's not the only one, but he's African-American. He's articulate. He's a, a brave, courageous defender of racial equality in the United States. But he has a total pro-Israeli voting record and caves in to the lobby every time any issue comes up. That's got to stop. People in the African-American community, um, it's not all on them by any stretch. But when representatives of that community want to talk about racial justice, they need to include Israel in that discussion. Secondly, uh, we need to make as big an issue as we possibly can about the money. Follow the money. Do you want your taxpayers' dollars, first of all, going to a country of only 9 million people, far more than goes to any other country in the world? It's more modern, more developed. What sense does that make? Is it vulnerable militarily? No. It has absolute security in the Middle East. That may not have always been the case. It's certainly the case today. Israel is a powerhouse with the most dominant military in the region, also the most aggressive one, one that engages in assassination and cross-border attacks willy-nilly. The United States looks the other way. So do you want your taxpayer dollars going to support an apartheid militant state that is engaging in utter contempt of the United Nations in uh, severe violations of human rights? If Americans really want to pay for that, polls show they want to make more and more polls optimistically show they want to condition that aid on Israel's behavior and real efforts to forge a Middle East peace. Also very optimistic, a lot of Jewish Americans, liberal Jews, are no longer, this was expected of Jews in the early period of Israel's history to simply be pro-Israeli, don't ask too many questions. Lots of American Jews are asking questions. They're not happy about Israel's policy. They're not happy about people like Netanyahu. Some groups like Jewish Voice for Peace are very outspoken. Others are contradictory, um, like J Street, but still uh, weighing in more and more. Finally, you run into this argument, well, Israel's our ally. We need Israel for national security. This is a wonderful term. 
justifies everything. National security, what is it? But uh, the term will be bandied about as if it's a given that... Uh, and so Israel's good for our national security. They're an important ally in the Middle East. Well, what have they done for us? Um, well, they've contributed to uh, 9-11, which is often denied. But uh, one reason 9-11 happened is because of these U.S. policies that I've been talking about. It's not the only reason, but it's part of the reason, though it is frequently denied. Um, the series of forever wars the United States has been involved in, all disastrous, failing, expensive, and replete with blowback, um, they've been cheered on by Israel. Israel's trying now to get the United States in a war with Iran. So what has this strategic partnership really done for the United States? Not much. And what it has done has not been good. So I think all these areas, um, the emphasis on race, human rights, support for the BDS movement, uh, support for Israel being a real democracy, challenging people for to oppose where their tax money is going, and uh, challenging this notion that Israel is a valuable ally. Those are the three fronts, I think, that critics such as myself uh, can attack on. Finally, I'll just conclude by saying I just reviewed for the Washington Report a wonderful memoir by Richard Falk, and uh, he's devoted his life for decades to this and other human rights issues and acknowledged that it's often frustrating and we don't always you know, uh, make the progress we want to see but uh, Richard Falk said um, he intended to die trying. So I found that pretty inspirational, and uh, I guess I'll try to do the same. Okay, thank you. So I think um, any questions from the audience first, and then we can go to any uh, Zoom questions. Any of you all have questions or comments? Uh, yeah, go ahead, Ellen. Yeah, it's the, the terminology is always uh, loaded. Um, conflict can also be, be misleading, and, and a lot of people shy away from conflict and prefer to use it. You know, well, Walter, can you repeat the question, please? Question or the Palestinian issue? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, our Zoom folks missed yeah, that question. Yeah, no, she asked about um, should it be called the Middle East peace because Israel, as she rightly points out, has made peace now, particularly uh, fostered by the Trump administration with. Um, but obviously before that, beginning with Sadat and Egypt with several Arab countries. So um, should it be called instead the Middle East conflict or the Palestine conflict was the question. But I was uh, saying that conflict is sort of uh, suggests this um, kind of basic and, and flawed view of it as, as two sort of equal partners in a conflict um, when it's really the settler colonial domination so the terminology is always problematic, and it's um, whatever terms you use, uh, it's the explanation and the uh, of the framing is really central. Go ahead. Oh yeah, thank you. Uh, well, as you probably know, that uh, residents in D.C. do not have a voting representation in Congress. So, what do you expect us to do? <laughs> Well, um, the the question was, uh, citizens of D.C., of course, notoriously do not have, uh, it's on the license plates here, uh, no taxation without representation. So what do you expect them to do? I mean, I think it's a good opportunity to understand that the United States is part of this problem and that its treatment of uh, indigenous people and minorities, and, and this is a predominantly minority city, and that's that's certainly a factor, Believe me, the last thing, uh, you know, uh, Republicans want is, is Washington, D.C. to have two senators or, uh, so, um, there's a symmetry. The point you raise, there's a symmetry in terms of particularly minorities, but also contempt for democracy that you could use to, um, just as I suggested, uh, Black Lives Matter could be linked with Israeli apartheid. You could also link this issue with the uh, repression of Palestine. Yeah. Other you know, affiliates or franchisees 
of the Israeli embassy um, operate in the United States. I mean, William Fulbright, the senator, was essentially unseated in his primary because he was asking that question. Mm -hmm. And I mean, are there laws and um, regulations that are actually being broken that it's not just a powerful lobby, but are rules and um, legal entities being broken? Okay. <clears throat> yeah, the question is, are, are laws and rules um, being broken by uh, by Israel and the lobby and uh, she mentioned that uh, J. William Fulbright very famously was was targeted and uh, lost his seat in the Senate in part. I don't think we can say fully because of the Israel lobby, but Fulbright had some other issues. But um, the question was about skirting of laws. And, and um, I mean, there are people who know more about this than I do, but there there's the Foreign Agents uh, Registration Act was passed in the late 1930s, and Israel began to circumvent that early on. And so, uh, you know, I think we probably all know that laws can be circumvented by good lawyers. And there's a close relationship between law and power. And you have to enforce laws in order for them to be effective. And these junkets, for example, there are laws and congressional regulations about foreign countries paying for overseas trips, but, you know, you get around it by creating a separate entity which pays for it. This is part, you know, APAC doesn't give the money directly to candidates either. It simply tells other PACs which candidates to support or not support. So I'm suggesting to you that uh, I think you're right. There are laws uh, and regulations that are skirted and circumvented um, and because, because law is closely related to power and uh, there has to be a willingness to enforce the law. And that's part of the power of Israel and the in the lobby in American society. I don't know if that's a great answer to your, to your question, but I, I think you're right that that happens uh, for sure. Anything else from in, anyone in here? Okay. Yes. What are your thoughts on wealthier Arab nations being allies with Israel? Yeah, but the question is, what are my thoughts on, on wealthier Arab nations being allies with, with Israel? And um, this is, you know, um, part of... What this illuminates is something I've talked about in this uh, other book a lot more, and we'll be talking about tomorrow in some talks in D.C., but um, very often the United States, uh, despite the lofty rhetoric of land of the free and land of liberty, um, the sponsor of democracy in the world, very often the United States, in fact, supports repressive and authoritarian and anti-democratic regimes. And that's certainly been the case with the Arab world, certainly with, with Egypt and, and uh, Saudi Arabia and many other uh, countries. And so particularly under Trump, as you suggest, there's been this somewhat successful effort to uh, get uh, Arab, the Abrahamic Accords and to get Arab countries conservative, uh, non-democratic um, regimes to uh, support Israel for economic benefits and payoffs, uh, Morocco with a land grab uh, in the desert and as its reward, for example. So the UAE. Um, this is, uh, what do I think of it? I think that, um, you know, that it could, best case scenario, inspire a, a, a backlash, a popular backlash. Uh, of course, we saw the Arab Spring turn into an Arab winter, so it's it's hard to be bubbly with optimism about that, but uh, I don't think it reflects what the residents of those countries would like to see, and it's not democratic, and it's supporting apartheid. It's supporting this kind of repression I've been talking about. So uh, those regimes need to be confronted with that and uh, hopefully pay some consequences. Maybe we'd best go to the Zoom. One more question in here real quick, and then... During Trump administration, um, I believe it was in Charlottesville or Saida TV, some youngsters were chanting slogans against Jews. Yes. Trump made comments about what happened there. You probably know that. Mm -hmm. I'm about. So, how do you reconcile these? <laughs> so, the question is uh, a reference to. Uh, 
Charlottesville, and uh, he's pointing out, the questioner's pointing out the irony, I guess, of um, Trump defending demonstrators who shouted anti-Jewish slogans in Charlottesville, uh, these white nationalist uh, protesters. So, look, anti-Semitism is real, and there's a whole long and sordid history of it, and it helped fuel the Zionist movement. And so uh, none of this is... uh, to suggest that it's not uh, a, a pernicious and real force in history and uh, in some segments in contemporary politics. So uh, this is why partly uh, a, a lot of liberal Jews, uh, despite Trump's efforts to be thoroughly pro-Israeli in every way and to, to accuse the Democratic Party of being anti-Semitic, he actually said that Democrats have become the anti-Semitic party, um, despite all that, and despite the Abrahamic Accords, um, Trump lost the Jewish vote handily in the 2020 uh, election. So um, it doesn't, uh, you know, his his sympathy for those marchers uh, perhaps uh, belied. Um, anyway, that helps explain, I hope, uh, a little bit the irony you're you're talking about. What do we have on Zoom, Grant? No, we've got a ton of ton of questions that came in. Uh, some of them are quite short and to the point. So Iman wants to know, kindly mention any agreements or treaties which bind the U.S. and Israel by the hip, and if any of them can be reversed. I'm sorry, I didn't hear the last part. Yeah, he wants to know what treaties bind U.S. and Israel by the hip, and if any of them can be reversed. Well, um, it's, it's highly instructive, for example. Uh, so what treaties... Israel wanted and tried for a long time, beginning with Ben-Gurion, to create a NATO-style relationship with the United States, a formal military alliance. The United States has always rejected that because that would just be over the top in terms of other countries in the region and relationships with the Arab world. So that's been resisted in name, but it's become uh, a reality. And it's a, a reality in terms of their military allies, and there's a very close military, NATO-like military alliance in, 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 in fact, if not, uh, in, in, uh, legal reality. And, um, there are many other cultural ties, including, by the way, one an interesting phenomenon that some scholars have explored. For example, um, Alfred McCoy in relation to the Philippines without getting too far afield, but he pointed out that U.S. support for uh, a police state in the Philippines, and despite you might think it's a democracy, it has strong police state characteristics, ended up through the training and the alliance process making the United States more of police-oriented. And many people have drawn parallels between Israel's policing and the policing in the United States that has become so infamous, uh, directed toward um, black lives in recent in recent years. So it's not a formal relationship. But it's uh, the, the exchange of police is an informal one. But um, think about Obama, a president who won the Nobel Peace Prize by uh, calling for a new approach to the Middle East and recognition of Palestine, completely thwarted, backed off, became a drone assassination president, much like Israel does, and signed the 10-year, $38 billion um, agreement to continue to fund Israel in perpetuity and on this most favored uh, status. So whether the agreements are formal or informal, they are bound at the hip. So Robert asks, the Israeli Minister of Diaspora Affairs, Shai, is touring the U.S. in order to mollify the left-leading Jewish community regarding the occupation. He's asking, what can we do to hold him and his government accountable? And he's also even asking you, what's his schedule? (laughs) Uh, I haven't followed uh, his tour, but, I mean, good luck to him um, with convincing um, anyone that the occupation isn't a human rights nightmare and a violation of international law. These, again, as I've, it's sort of my my litany today. These are facts. This is not a matter of opinion. So, um you know, I've had discussions with, with um, liberal Jews in my community and around the country, and a lot of people are, are fed up, and they're not buying it any longer. I mean, how much or how active they'll get 
remains to be seen. I mean, I would love it if the entire Jewish community, I personally, it's not my job to tell the Jewish community what to think or do, but I have great admiration for JVP, Jewish Voice for Peace. And they're all in on BDS and everything else. And so, you know, it's easy for liberals in general and liberal Jews, and Jews have traditionally been a, a liberal group in American society. It's easy for liberals to uh, settle for sweet talk that Israel and the lobby specialize in. But these realities are are just that, and they need to be confronted with them. So another question from Sylvia is, obviously much needs uh, to change in Congress. What are two or three things that we can do to make this change happen? Well, you know, each individual can can take up the matter with their representative. Uh, that's an obvious start. Um, but it's, it's very difficult. And let's look at it from the congressional point of view. I mean, um, you, we would like to think, I would like to think that I would say, I'm sorry, democracy, massacring people, making no discrimination between civilians and military targets. There aren't really military targets in Hamas. They have some pathetic projectiles. They fire and protest periodically for their total repression of, of their society. Just what's, what Israel's done in Gaza alone is, is a, a massive war crime. So uh, I would like to think, and we would all maybe like to think, that if we were in Congress, we would stand up to that. But very few do. Um, very few. Even some members of the squad uh, voted for the Iron Dome or not against it. So it's difficult with Congress. Um, we have to relentlessly publicize the fact that I put it in the terms, I put it in very stark. Uh, if more people would confront more Americans with the fact that their Congress is owned by a very powerful lobby. I mean, people can get upset about the gun lobby. They get upset about big pharma. They probably get upset about the old person's lobby. They need to get upset about the Israel lobby. And so it has to be a popular movement. I, I, so we can contact our individual congressmen. We can confront them with it if we can ever see them. But um, I think it's going to take a more general movement. Really, I think it's going to take, you know, the kind of cosmic answer to that question is it's going to take dramatic changes in the United States that transcend uh, Israel policy and a lot of other things. And this is a big subject and a complex subject. I am talking about it more later or tomorrow in in Washington on this trip. But basically, the United States has to change fundamentally before the Congress is going to change. Uh, and I, I mean a sea change like we had with World War II when the United States became a global superpower and built a national security state and a military-industrial complex. We need a change of that sweeping significance in a totally different direction. So Gary sent in a... 15 part question, but I think I can summarize it. Um, he, Let's go with five of them. He wants to know about the overall transparency of total U.S. subsidies to Israel. So he says there are several dozen 501c3 not for profit organizations that give U.S. tax deductions uh, to corporations and individuals who contribute and they pass those on to Israel, American friends groups. Uh, he's He's calculated that that's probably about the same level as the three plus billion dollars in foreign aid per year. So it's like a matching grant that totals six billion. Uh, he also references that the largest subsidy appears to be classified with the U.S. black budget for CIA, NSA, DOD having several billion for Israel that the taxpayer is not allowed to see because it's classified. National security grant. Well, Gary asks, he, he heard Senator Dianne Feinstein even refer to it as being up to $25 billion in 2015, which might be a comprehensive number, including all subsidies. But he's asking, can we uh, ever come to know with any accuracy what the total subsidization from uh, the U.S. is? And then he turns to asking why the U.S. would significantly subsidize a wealthy country, which has one of the highest per capita GDPs, 128 billionaires, and with a national debt, only a fraction of what the U.S. is building up. 
Great. Well, thank Gary for that comment, and I think I know who Gary is, and um, and he's he's all over it. And um, you know, uh, all I've talked about is the 146 billion and the 10-year 38 billion. That's what we know about. And so what he's talking about is the stuff we don't know about, and because it's national security, you don't need to know. So there's no transparency. And again, I think it'll take a sea change before there is some, but uh, that, that's a great question, comment. And, uh, you know, if it equals the amount or even exceeds the amount, as Feinstein and others have suggested, then that tells you how much more powerful even than we think or that we know that uh, Israel and the lobby are. So there's all kinds of dark money in American politics today, and there's all kinds of dark money in Israel and the lobby, and, and thank uh, Gary for that. So uh, another couple uh, of questions uh, touch on uh, what um, or why you have essentially been motivated to be so involved in this important and just campaign. And as an academic and your trajectory of publications, how easy has it been to publish critical information like you're delivering tonight in, in these prestigious uh, academic presses? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was a Cold War historian. Uh, the Cold War seemed to me to be the transcendent event of our time, and I wanted to understand it, understand where it came from. My early publications were all about the history of the Cold War. The Middle East was periphery, peripheral to my vision. And I also, uh, frankly, had very naive and ill-informed misconceptions about the conflict, that this was ancient enmities, that, oh, Jews and Muslims must just hate each other. It's been going on since biblical days. What can we do about it? Um, and that kind of ignorance uh, probably motivated me to uh, be where I am now in, in really homing in on this issue, which I've been doing for about a decade now. And so as I looked into it, although I was very knowledgeable about the history of American foreign policy, it was my research specialty. I'd published in books on it with Ivy League presses. I was supposed to know something, and I was appalled at my own ignorance as I got informed about the conflict. And, and I mean, I was literally reading, you know, books like great books by Avi Schleim, you know, a great place to, to start, the Iron Wall, Israeli historian. And I was reading this stuff and just going, you're kidding. Uh, it, it was so abundantly clear what was going on here is, is I've sort of described it in stark terms today. So, um, I mean, there's everything wrong with this. It's uh, racist. It's in violation of human rights, uh, human progress. It's replete with lies and disinformation and vicious propaganda. It attacks people who try to question it or try to tell the truth. It attacks students on their own college campuses. I mean, it needs to be deconstructed, uh, demythologized, and opposed. And, um, you know, I feel good about doing it because it's the right thing to do. And I'm, I don't have a lot of ambiguous, um, thoughts about the rightness of this cause. I think it's, it's palpably clear. I don't know everything about it and everything is complicated in history. And as I said, Palestinians and Arabs have not always been smart in the history of this conflict. Um, but I think I've grasped the essence of it. And, uh, you know, I hate to see my country, uh, uh doing it and supporting it and aiding it. So another question on that support. Um, well, if you want me to, I can just add, Grant, you did ask about academic publishing. I had some issues with Cambridge University Press on Israel's armor, and it is very difficult to get critical work on Israel in mainstream journalism, academic uh, presses, and not many people in the academy will take this position on, uh, especially, frankly, people who look like me, who are, who are white males. Um, you know, you're... you're um, it's better career move to embrace the national security state and uh, operate within that discourse and, and framework. And, and as I mentioned to you, it's probably telling that I did this later in my career. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so Nabilas, uh, we know the strength of APAC, and we see most states condemning um, BDS. So what can we do? And I'll just add out and out outlawing it. They're basically passing laws to... Yes, I mean, I think we could, um, uh, you know, I'm not an attorney, but um, I think we could pass laws on, on stricter lobbying. 
Absolutely. Um, we have to do something about the media too. And, um, you know, the, the Washington report, um, does great work. Uh, lots of people do great work, but the mainstream media is a, is a tough nut to crack. And so until we get some broader exposure in mainstream media, in the New York Times, you know, uh, on the CBS Evening News, until they start bringing guests on who will tell the truth about this situation, it's going to be difficult to get laws that would rein in lobbyists and protect our, our real, genuine national security rather than uh, the interests of uh, an aggressive uh, militant apartheid state. So Fahed is asking, can you discuss the nation law passed by the Knesset defining Israel as a Jewish state only and ignoring the 20% Palestinian Arab population. Yeah, I, I did mention that. And um, the Jewish state law is, is I mean, it's, they might as well have had a parade and, and a big announcement saying, hey, we're an apartheid state. Uh, we are glad to announce that we're officially an apartheid state. And that's what uh, the great uh, Haaretz uh, columnist Gideon Levy wrote, uh, Levy wrote a, a column at the time saying, well, Israel's finally telling the truth with the Jewish state law. It's coming out as an apartheid state and admitting that it's an apartheid state. Because the law basically says Israel is a Jewish state and it's those 20% of people who are not Jewish, Palestinian or Ethiopians who endure uh, a lot of discrimination. But all that being said, uh, let's let's be fair. There are a lot of people in Israel uh, who are not just as there are a lot of people in this country who are not happy with their government. There are a lot of people in Israel, Jewish Israelis, who are not happy with their government. There is bold work done by Betzalem and human rights groups. Uh, there's bold work being done by Palestinian groups. That's why uh, Israel is in its assault on free speech, shut trying to shut them down in another blatantly undemocratic. Uh, move. Um, so, um, yeah. So Justine asks, uh, some would argue that while APAC is very strong in controlling the imperialistic stance of the U.S. foreign policy, Iran, Guatemala, Vietnam, Chile, Latin America, most recently Honduras, Haiti, and 800 U.S. bases internationally is more powerful than that <laughs> lobby and particularly in terms of supporting the weapons industry. So please comment, and thanks for your great work. Yeah, I mean, it's a great comment uh, and question. Um, and that's what, you know, this book does deal with that very, very issue, the um, uh, imperialism and war that the history Americans need to own. He or she is absolutely right. Um, so the way I view the lobby is, so we have some people who deny the influence of the lobby, which is counterfactual and, and crazy, and unfounded. But there are other people who don't like it when you you don't argue that the lobby is everything. And so I, I agree with the comment in this sense that without the foundation of the United States as a settler colonial state that is comfortable in a certain core identity way, you don't spend centuries um, cleansing the land of indigenous people enslaving Africans and, and African-Americans, then having a long regime of segregation and still having, you know, profound issues of racial inequality in this country. All of this makes the United States, which is like Israel, a congenitally aggressive settler state, it makes it fertile ground for the Israel lobby to operate on. So I view them as working in symmetry. Uh, American uh, identity plus the lobby is very powerful, and that's why it has endured and remains very powerful. So I agree with the premise of the question that it's not just solely the Israel lobby that makes this uh, pernicious system operate. Okay, so Najad, I don't know if this is tongue-in-cheek, asks, how do you explain liberal media supporting wars in the Middle East? You know, uh, how do you explain liberal media supporting the wars in the Middle East? Um, when the Iraq war broke out, and that was a profound, had a profound impact on me uh, as well in my thinking about foreign policy and, and, um, you know, that this, this war, I actually thought they might, Iraq, have weapons of mass destruction. I didn't think they'd lie so blatantly. But, um, you know, 
I knew that this was uh, a mistake, and uh, I felt strongly that it was the wrong thing to do. Um, it's, you know, at the time I remember that uh, critics quoted the Nazi propagandist Goebbels, and he was asked, how do you rev up the people to support war? He said, oh, it's easy. You just tell them their security is threatened, that the opponent hates freedom, is trying to destroy the nation, and they'll rally to the cause. Unfortunately, uh, there's a lot of truth to that. It's, again, this discourse of national security. You know, we're going to be told, potentially, look, if Iran has a nuclear weapon, it won't just threaten Israel, it'll threaten the United States. We could all be destroyed. We must have a war with Iran. I, I can certainly see that uh, commentary being a, a possibility. I hope this doesn't happen. I hope Americans have learned something from Afghanistan, Iraq, these forever wars. We didn't learn much from Vietnam. We're not very good history learners, I'm afraid. So, uh, but it's not hard uh, to rev up a segment of the population when the, the national, you have a national security apparatus that is vast. Any, you people here in, with me tonight, most of you live in Washington, this place in Northern Virginia, <laughs> This is your national security establishment. It's everywhere. They're over there working hard at, at Langley and uh, elsewhere in the NSA to, to um, you know, promote these views if they serve the interests of national security, which, of course, is a, a highly subjective phenomenon, not the objective one it's depicted as. So I think we're down to the final question here. Okay, we'll have one more in the audience, and then we'll call it a day. Okay. All right. So Felix asks, what will... Referring to the title of tonight's talk, what will prevent America's special relationship with apartheid Israel from enduring? Yeah, I really think, and it's not a very satisfactory answer, and I'm sorry about it, but um, it's you really want to know my reading of it, is I think it's going to take a profound paradigm shift. And I don't think it's going to come easily. Um, I mean, we're making progress. Polls show that the... Uh, Increasing determination of liberal Jews to challenge Israel shows that maybe the Black Lives Matter will have more of an impact. Maybe BDS will continue to erode support. Um, so, but I really largely believe that um, the the forces that are coalescing, and by I'm referring to climate change and um, the need, which is rather obvious for international efforts on health sanitation and disease control, combating migration, addressing poverty, population growth, all those things are not on the agenda. We're operating within the Cold War paradigm. We need to transcend that and have a whole new paradigm. And until that happens, I'm not sure this special relationship will be overturned, but I hope it will, and uh, we have to, to die trying. One last question. You can only ask one. You've already had two, so you only get one more. <laughs> okay. Um, personally, I'm not. I'm non-religious. Um, I take I take care of Jews and then Christian minorities. I've been asked uh, a rabbi maybe a week ago about the roots of anti-Semitism and why it still continues. So, what do you think of the roots of why do we still have it in the United States? Mm -hmm. That's yeah. That's the first question. And the other one is, it would be nice if you allow me to ask, Father. Make, make it okay. brief one because I have to repeat yeah. the question. Uh, my other one is, okay, is there a country in Europe that strongly supports the rights of Palestinians? Okay. Uh, two good questions. He asked, first of all, why does anti-Semitism endure? And um, asked, uh, which is a good question about Europe. And are, is there a country in Europe that supports the rights of Palestinians? Let me answer the the second one first, because um, I didn't talk about Europe and I actually don't investigate it in Architects of Repression. But the the lobby is also very um, operates in Europe, particularly in the UK, and uh, but but throughout Europe and polices dissent. But but Europe has always been marginally more critical. Western Europe, marginally more critical of of uh, Israel and uh, the occupation than the United States. So countries like France, Sweden, uh, Denmark have been more critical 
but um, also confront the same power of, of a lobby and charges of anti-Semitism uh, that they, they, uh, they don't hold steady. They're more critical, more inclined to support the UN. It's, it's marginally better than the situation in the United States is my reading of it, but it's not full-fledged, all-out kind of, you know, approach that clearly I would advocate. Second question about anti-Semitism is a real good question. And I got, um, interested in anti-Semitism and, and read, read quite a bit on the history of it. And, um, you know, this is a, a canard that really took off in the World War I period, um, with the, uh, that the Rothschild banking empire was, was dominant. And this goes back to centuries when other groups were forbidden from money lending and Jews did engage in money lending. So it's created all sorts of stereotypes and cliches. Jews became a convenient scapegoat that, um, a, uh, a nationalist authoritarian, uh, militant fanatic, um, named Trump, I mean, Hitler, um, used to orchestrate the Nazi genocide. Again, it's not that hard to do. Um, so um, on the Internet today, and we probably shouldn't have any discussion of anything without thinking about the profound role of information and disinformation. And I know from, uh, I hate to say, but to some young young people in my own family tree, not my own children, thankfully, but relatives, who read stuff on the internet, you know, linking Bill Gates, the Rothschild Zionist conspiracy, and every other pile of nonsense you want to come up with. So a lot of this stuff is just out there on the net, and people read it, particularly people who don't go to college, which is young white males. Uh, our colleges now are going to be overwhelmingly comprised of uh, women, 60%, only 40% males. Young white men are not going to college. They're not learning critical thinking skills. They're not able to read that and say, that's crap on the Internet. Um, sorry, Grant, I said a bad word. But they are able to, uh, they're not able to distinguish. So I think that's one reason this sort of thing continues. Thank you all very much uh, for coming and for your uh, attention. <laughs>